Alrighty, welcome back to episode four of Junto Talks. Back in Annenberg studio with Akash and Aiden. How are you doing today, guys? Doing pretty good. Thanks, Adam. Uh, happy to be here. Excited. Wonderful uh, sunny morning. A little later than last week, so uh, I think we're all well rested. Well rested and ready to get chatting. Yeah. So I thought we'd start off with uh, a topic that's that I'll be talking about in a few weeks at um, at TEDx USC, mm-hmm. and it has to do with uh, the 10-day silent meditation course I sat a few years ago. Have you are you guys familiar with these? silent meditation courses that are sort of crop, cropping up in popularity we kind of talked about it on the side a bit but but uh, we definitely want you to give us a recap and my exposure is a little closer to the sam harris podcast and headspace and these a little more commercialized <laughs> not not quite 10 days silent well, what's that like yeah so i'm actually not familiar with what sam harris has done but the 10 day silent meditation courses they're basically uh a a way for any ordinary person to go and live like a monk for a week and so you you show up to the course you give them all your possessions you give them your you know you put away your phone you put away your laptop you basically just have you know a shirt and pants and you roll and you know pairs of those and you roll with that for about 10 days hmm. and you run through this super uh, you know, strict daily timetable, 4 a.m. wake-ups, 10 hours of daily meditation, one to two-hour blocks at a time. Uh, you only get breakfast and lunch, so no dinner. And you just get one evening discourse, which contextualizes what you have uh, m- like learned throughout the day through meditation. And the idea is that through uh, it's it's more of like an experiential learning, right? Like often you're in the classroom, mm-hmm. and you can you can sit and like read textbooks about Buddhism all day long. But the real way to actually like get the benefit of something like that uh, is to put it into practice. And so you're meditating all day long uh, in this vipassana tradition, mm-hmm. and you the 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 lectures in the evening are just for the the contextualization. But over the over the ten days, uh, you slowly get deeper and deeper into meditation, sure. and it's really incredible the the effects that it has on on people, on myself. I walked away from my first course feeling incredibly calm and peaceful mm-hmm. and content. I I actually went in thinking I would, uh, you know, you know, get some deep like you know concentration boost. I would see reality in a different way. I don't know if there was some kind of like cosmic power that monks had that I would uh get access to but it's I I personally found that it was none of that it Mm -hmm. what it was really great is the uh just like deep contentment that you that you're left with afterwards and I feel like that's I don't know I I haven't I feel like people I wish people would talk more about that and when they talk about meditation that it's not and I, I hear people talk about it oh it's it can benefit you know it can like um help you like improve your productivity it can it's a good like daily habit to form, but what it really does is just like keep you calm and keep you more content and grateful in a, in a crazy world. But what was interesting though about this course is, and what I'm talking about in, in the Ted talk is like the constraints that are placed on you when you're living at this monastery, that you're able to develop these habits, which like you know, habits of, you know, uh, an hour of daily meditation, 
an hour or more, in this case, 10 hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, eating very healthy. So eating uh, like no sort of like processed foods, eating no snacks throughout the day, just a few lighter meals. Uh, you know, obesity is a big problem in the United States. A lot of us eat too much and all of us eat unhealthy foods. Yeah. Um, but when constraints are placed around you on like what your diet can be, that that really helps you just eat healthier. As well as, let's say, like not using your phone. Like I have a, I have a problem of using my phone for too long often. But when that constraint of not even having your phone exists, that you literally put it away and you're not able to use it throughout the day, mm-hmm. you s- just stop re- using your phone. And over time, you know, you s- you notice that urge would die away. Like I would have an urge to pull out my phone, um, just to like pull it out and do nothing on it. Yeah. The first day of the meditation course. But by like eight or by day eight or nine, that urge slowly sort of died away. And so I wouldn't have been able to do these things on my own if it was just, you know, you were like, Adam, I want you to like start meditating for two hours a day. I want you to, you know, only eat healthy foods, cut out every unhealthy snack and, you know, get super disciplined with your screen time. Yep. I would not be able to do that in it, while we're here at USC, while I'm just living my life normally. But when you're in an environment with constraints, those constraints can help you, you know, reach some kind of goal that you have. Interesting. I wonder. I wonder. So you, you brought up this feeling of like content, like content, right? That comes from meditation. What what's the source of that feeling of content? Like why do you why do you feel content? Is it because you've disciplined yourself to improve your way of life? Is it because you've challenged yourself to do something that other people find very difficult? Uh, like why why are you content after that? After yeah, it's not the challenging yourself to do something difficult because I've certainly done more like impressive or like things or you know received accolades and other ways before that. Mm. It does give you a good sense of contentment, but it doesn't go as deep. I think it's the it's a mixture of a number of things. It's a mixture of of slowing down, mm-hmm. um, living at a slower pace. Yeah. There's something about it that. Uh, that's better for the mind. I think it's, um, thinking more wholesome thoughts. So we would, we would spend towards the end of the meditation course, there was like gratitude meditation sessions where you would just sit and literally just, you know, roll in thoughts of gratitude. Like, what am I thankful for? I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my family over and over again. And that actually does sort of change the way your brain works. Sure. Um, I think it's also just like, living a healthy lifestyle like getting good sleep eating healthy food yeah and being outside in nature mm-hmm. i don't know not having stress right when you're when you're working when you're in your living life and you're working a job there's plenty of stress but when you go to one of these meditation courses uh it's sort of you know similar to going on vacation where you're just kind of having fun yeah except it's it's also with the meditation which you know there's there's a number of any number of books you can read um like alter traits is one why Buddhism is true on how meditation uh, just makes you like feel better. Cool. Yeah. And where, where was where was this again? Where was the the first the first ten day course I sat was in the Philippines. Oh, the Philippines. Okay. Um, about three hours from Manila, deep in the jungle. It was it was wow. crazy. The view was the views were incredible too. So I have to say that was part of the of the magic. Yeah. But the then I went back and went to Delaware and spent a summer there. Doing these meditation courses, like sitting them and serving them, yep. and then I also, I've been to Korea, to do one, mm-hmm. and then I also have done a number in like apartments. 
So my friend Joe, yeah. he and I went to his apartment in Knoxville. And we just we literally transformed the apartment into a monastery, if you will. So we we went to Costco, bought a week's worth of food, stuffed it in the cabinets. We took down all the decorations. We um, we sort of uh, prepared the beds on the floor because sleeping on the floor is supposed to be more like humbling rather than on beds. Uh-huh. And then we um, we set up our like, one timer uh, and a uh, and the calendar, the schedule for the week, yeah. and that was it. And we just lived like monks for a week. But it was what makes that possible is the constraints, right? Yeah. If we had our phones, you know, sitting around us, that would be too tempting. Um, if we had people that were like walking in and out of the apartment, that would also be too difficult. But when you when you add these like constraints yep. around yourself. Uh, it makes certain things a lot more possible. And it's the same thing if you think about like, let's look at, let's think about some other examples of constraints, right? Like um, think about professional athletes, like an NBA player. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you are an NBA player and you're on an NBA team, you don't have the same kind of freedoms an average person would, right? Like they are going to keep track of your diet. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be in the gym for X number of hours every day. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not going to be going out and partying some athletes do but the ones that do adhere to the constraints placed on them um they they sort of benefit from this this structure that allows them to go even further right it's like limitation it's limitating in some ways Mm -hmm. but things that are limit limit limiting can also be enabling yeah that's very interesting It, it, it seems like so many people myself included orient their happiness around things in their life. Um, really positive, valuable things, your friendships, your your family, um, being able to do work that you care about, that you enjoy, um, being able to you know have fun, goof off, uh, spend time with people that you care about, do something good in the world. But these are all uh, concrete, tangible things, and you can either succeed and then you'll be happy, or you can fail at them, and then often you'll be miserable. Or even if you know you're all about the process, sometimes you're injured. An athlete who's injured can't go to the gym, can't feel that same happiness. Is orienting yourself around uh, those kinds of material things in your life and basing your happiness off them is that somehow broken? Uh, should people just like it seems like this retreat is much more about you are content because you are able to clear your mind and life is. You know, life life is maybe fundamentally good that you can just enjoy the experience of being calm and you don't actually need to go out and do anything or there doesn't need to be interaction with all these material objects or other people. Um, there's contentment and there's meaning to be found just alone um, in silence. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's that it's that 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 sense of like calmness is actually a quite mm-hmm pleasurable like positive enjoyable sort of like state of being Mm -hmm. and it actually can be more sort of persistent than other pleasurable states interesting and so we think about like like yeah calmness and peaceness usually it's like oh if the world was like peaceful everything would be good it's like peace as in like a state of like no conflict but there's also peace as like a a mental state kind of of like have you guys heard of the term equanimity is it Related to that, it's hundred percent related to that. Yeah. So that's a, that's yeah. a term that's very often used in this, in this in this context, like an equanimous mind, right? Like right. balanced mind. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. So I meditate too, not as much as I should. I, I usually, 
I try to do every day, but I usually end up doing like four to five times a week. So I, I miss a day here too. And, and it's, it's bad that I miss a day because it's like really you don't have 10 minutes in a day to set aside and take care of your mind, right? Like probably the most important like organ in your body, right? Meditate this morning? Uh, no, not this morning. I usually oh, do you meditate first thing in the morning? Because I usually meditate in the middle of the day. Middle of the day, interesting. I, yeah. I always I always usually do first thing in the morning or first thing or like last thing in the evening. One of the two. Interesting. So how do you what do you do for the middle of the day? You just like you just middle of class, you just get up and leave. Uh okay, so yeah, right now it's convenient because no no, no well oh, okay, I'll be finished with class. I have time between <laughs> classes. I'll be back in my apartment, I'll just like, you know, like put myself down and meditate for ten minutes. Um but yeah, probably when I live off campus, it'll have to change because it won't be, you know, going home. Do you think the there's any one specific tradition of meditation that provides more value than others? I mean, you mentioned wanting to go to a Catholic monastery or to go, you know, be like Thoreau and go live in a cabin in the woods and be self-sufficient <laughs> and just write all day. Uh, are all of those different ways of living bringing the same thing or are there important differences between the doctrines they teach? I think they would probably say there's very important differences between them i think they all would say there's important differences and i can't speak to all of them i i know there's like a whole huge variety um not only within just quote-unquote meditation which is often like associated with like buddhism but also you know like catholicism and hinduism and many other religions right mm -hmm. but i can just speak to vipassana meditation which is like a a type of um meditation in like the theravada Buddhist tradition and I it, it works it works quite well but it also works the best on longer stretches of time and this is one thing I'd tell people is that I like I had a really sort of like um, I don't know revealing intimate like experience with meditation through those that 10 day silent meditation course mm -hmm. but I have never had anything near that while living in, like living my life and sitting in like 10 minutes or 30 minutes a day it is it is beneficial and it is i do appreciate it but like the you you do see like like the the depth of of what meditation can can bring you you do see that when you go to one of these courses i'd be curious to do a 10-day course with another meditate with another meditation uh technique i think that would be be revealing if you did 10 days of like meditation with only let's say vipassana 10 days with transcendental 10 right. days with choose your pick your favorite meditation Right. And like then you you did that over, you know, different period of time. You compare which one brought which kind of results. I think that would be the best yardstick. Kind of like A B testing for, for meditation. Yeah, A B yeah. test meditation. <laughs> I just don't know of any other really um techniques that offer these kind of like deep meditation retreats. Sure. Like Vipassana does. So 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 in uh, Vipassana, what's actually going on during the meditation? So like when I meditate, for example, I do like mindfulness meditation, you know, I don't know the um, exact terminology for it, but like I try yeah. to be really mindful. I focus on my breathing as classic, but I like any kind of thought that comes into my mind about some other issue, uh, I immediately push away. I just try to focus on the present, which is really difficult for me to do, honestly. And I think it's difficult for most people to do, but mm -hmm. only focus on just existing in the present moment. Is that what you did for, for 10 hours a day, or is there something else that you do during the actual meditation? That's exactly it. The The term mindfulness actually was created by um, some Americans decades ago, but it, it is comes from the, the Vipassana practice, actually. Ah. It was people that sort of like dove into that side, and they were like, oh, 
mindfulness is a fitting term for it because what it really is is with vipassana it's it's observing sort of reality as it is right without reacting to it and mm-hmm. that the the breath and the body are 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 sort of used because they're really great anchors to hook into the present moment so right, right. it's Makes not sense. like the breath has any like special properties. It's yes. just that it's something internal that you can observe. Right. It's not like fake. Yep. That, that I, I've I heard the teachers talking about this a number of times. How it's like, oh, you know, don't don't imagine, don't visualize because that's not real. You need to mm. observe something that is real. Your breath is real. Whatever like you observe in your body is real because you know you're you're a living being and that's that's just like the physical reality. Right. And so it's. It's your breath and then body. You observe that continuously. Thoughts come up. Your attention wanders away. Mm-hmm. And then they would they would frame it as like less of like pushing the thoughts away and more of like you just redirect your attention back to yourself. Right, right. And the, the thoughts themselves will just like flutter away. And it's really interesting because when you do that over and over again, that sort of like detachment that they always talk about Mm -hmm. it actually does come into play where like a thought can come up and you can have the ability to like to not necessarily engage with it off the bat that you can look at that thought and you can say do i want to engage with this and so it's helpful because like a lot of times we'll have like negative mean thoughts that come up right like hurtful thoughts right and it's not like you can't control what thoughts come up necessarily from you. Like you can try to do things in life that will maybe maybe make 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 you better have have better thoughts, right? Like let's say you spend time around more wholesome people mm-hmm. who are kind, loving. You'll probably have more kind and loving thoughts. But maybe you 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 grew up in like a really like mean household with parents who were like shouting at each other, and that sort of dialogue is deeply ingrained in your mind. Mm-hmm. And when someone meets us, does something mean to you that sort of experience from your with your parents when you were young kind of comes back out mm-hmm. and your mind starts wanting to you know you have the thought to like shout some you know profanity back at them the idea is that uh, if more and more you can sort of like build discernment where you have a thought but not that thought sort of like based on the experiences and what you in uh, you know where you're at right now but that you can sort of take a step back and be like do I want to engage with this thought or not yeah quite interesting so if you guys if you get me if you guys are gonna yell some profanity at me <laughs> just do a little meditation beforehand no it seems beneficial i think there's I, i've just thought about it i've thought about it a couple of times but if you think about the number of thoughts you have that you're voluntarily deciding to think about versus the number of thoughts you have that just come to your mind and now you like have to deal with them because they're there and they're here to stay like it's a tremendous difference you know and so limiting the amount of thoughts that you have that are like not in your control, not productive. Uh, it's uh, it's crazy how many unproductive, useless thoughts that we have that we don't we do not realize. Right, because you don't actually do anything with those thoughts, right? They're just thoughts. They bother you, and then nothing changes because you had the thought and you worried about it. It just mm-hmm. <laughs> increases your stress levels. Yeah, it can be anything from like these unproductive thoughts, right? It's like anything from worry. Mm. Uh, let's like thinking about something too much. That can be a type of unproductive thought. It could be um, thinking about what are some examples? Thinking about something like non-important. 
like let's say i don't know you start thinking about um what would be a good example um just like anxiety like social anxiety like if you start um, yourself criticizing others i mean being angry at someone in your own head rarely accomplishes anything right you know if if there's some way that you need to fix a situation then you can think about how to do that um but just stewing in negative emotions um not only is it not fun but it probably makes you a worse person and mm. makes you take worse actions there's that there's there's you know maybe an impulse let's say you're working on an assignment and you have the thought of um oh like what was the score of the basketball game last night but this assignment is due in half an hour and you should be working on that. But then this thought comes up and it just, you just, you're over, you're overcome by this, this like desire to learn about the basketball game. And so you just put the homework down when really the, the monk would notice the thought be like, I don't really, I don't need to engage with this right now and right. return his attention back to the, the assignment. But it's just, it's hard to have that, that mental discipline. And that's really what, meditation well at least this type kind of vipassana meditation it's, it's one you know, quality it hopes to uh cultivate cool so do you want to give a shout out when and where your ted talk is yes it is wednesday april 19th at uh Beauvard auditorium cool 7 cool. p.m if you look it up on eventbrite the event pops up grab your tickets yeah and i look forward to Seeing you guys there. I'll wink at you guys in the audience if you yeah. come through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That'll be fun. Have any of you been to, to TED, like you, TEDx USC talk? Or? I, I haven't. What kind of events do they put on? Who else is speaking? Do you know any? Um, yeah, there's a number of other speakers. There's um, there's one. Um, yeah, I'm not going to. I won't spoil it all. You guys have to, okay, okay. have to find out for yourself. Cool. Sure, sure. But have you been to a uh, previous? I years? wish. They usually sell out. So. Oh, no way. Yeah. Sure. I'm going to take fast then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Awesome. What's what's uh, else? Uh, what else is new? We, yeah, we were, we were talking about before the episode, like, what should we, what should we discuss today? And there's just too many things to talk about, you know, but uh, let's start with probably one of the bigger things we've seen in the news. NATO, uh, NATO has a new member now. Uh, we're welcoming Finland to the club. Mm. So, how, how, what initial thoughts on that? Great thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, it's a good club. Yeah. Fight against Russia. Russia's been kind of mean lately. You you want to make the battle lines clear. Right. Vague battle lines and uncertainty about who's going to defend who in a crisis, I feel like, can spill into more crises. This is like the whole World War One problem. Um, and so, to say that. Finland is obvious, always has been in the group of countries that we would defend. And so to now say that they officially are um, is probably a good thing, right? Are Norway and Sweden in NATO? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure either. I, I want to say Norway is. Uh, I wonder what made Finland join now because I, I totally see you that pointed on that. Uh, like They are a country that we would have defended in any case. So why did they not join decades ago? Why is it now? They have a big border with Russia. And so Russia was always very against them joining. And like Russia's views do matter there. Like, you know, we couldn't have, Ukraine is not part of NATO because Russia would hate that. And they've always wanted to take back Ukraine. And, you know, we don't want to provoke them too much by doing something like that. Yeah, there's, okay, so there's that to it. 
I don't know if you guys remember, but in the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war, Putin said that Finland joining NATO would be treated as an act of escalation and might warrant nuclear action. So he actually said that in the beginning of the war to, to try to deter us from, from uh, bringing Finland into NATO. There's that. Also, I was going to ask you guys about this, but uh, Turkey has been an active member of NATO to stop Finland from joining. Do you guys know more uh, like about what, what that's about? No. Tur- Turkey really plays both sides. Mm. Um, so they say in Syria, um, they are super against uh, the rebels that the U.S. has been supporting, um, which are fighting against the dictator there. Russia and Turkey have kind of sided with the dictator and against the rebels. Um, the U.S. has sided with the rebels, and that's been going on for since past 2012. Um, Erdogan is basically a dictator there. There was a, a coup attempt a couple of years ago. Um, there's an election coming up where he might potentially lose some of his power or even lose the prime ministership. In which case, like, uh, so they have always kind of sided with Russia on some things and been Russia's kind of way into the NATO. But we also need them to ally against Russia. And so they get to kind of be the linchpin that decides these critical issues. Hmm. And so their status as of now is what? They're in NATO and they just finally voted to approve Finland. Um, which probably means that whatever Russians they're talking to said that, you know, they won't launch any nuclear weapons over it. Well, so that's interesting. That's interesting that we have a member of NATO that's, it seems like they're, like you said, I forget the term that you used, but they seem to be like the seesaw, right? I feel like every other NATO member is is pretty solid in, in their footing and, and okay, like we're going to take a stand against Russia, but Turkey seems to be a little wishy-washy. Uh from my understanding, Turkey plays a vital role to the United States and NATO because uh, during Soviet Union times, they're an important uh, strategic ally because of their positioning. We were able to have nuclear weapons positioned in Turkey that were in striking range of the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, is that why they're still in NATO now? Like, what, what do you guys think of their NATO membership? It seems important to bring more people into the group. Yeah. Um, I guess one natural allyship there is authoritarian countries. The U.S. is opposed to the current leadership of Turkey because the current leadership of Turkey is violating democracy and like uh, just not one of the kinds of regimes that we're going to ally with. Yeah. Whereas China has recently allied with both Saudi Arabia and Iran um, because that's a, a nice little, uh, you know, the U.S. will never be fully on board with those countries and their current governments, whereas people like Putin and Xi are much more comfortable um, making allies like that. And so... It's difficult when when your allies like there's both this like war of like U.S. versus Russia and like Russian people like Russia and U.S. people like U.S. But it's also like freedom against authoritarianism. And I think that Mm. that is totally a valid angle. You said China recently partnered with or is talking with Syria and Iran, those two countries in particular. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. I wonder um, I wonder what the sort of. uh, domestic um, like common view of Chinese people towards those two countries is because obviously it's like because from 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 the perspective you just described it's like you know Iran and Saudi Arabia they're both um, you know authoritarian you know governments mm-hmm. and so it's not hard for China to partner with them but there's also it's they don't they don't really align necessarily on like um, you know Han Han purpose or like Han identity whatsoever right right um, so i wonder there's been persecution of muslims within china so i wonder what how how they how those governments like 
like communicate to their citizens mm -hmm. that this is like a, a good partnership or if they don't even tell them like i wonder what the common common knowledge is there yeah in one sense they don't need to right. um i mean the u.s doesn't have too much in common with saudi arabia culturally but we've been best friends for years you know there's plenty of u.s presidents going over and shaking hands and taking pictures point. and you know oil is a huge factor um iran is you know, developing a nuclear weapons program uh, to fight against the biggest U.S. ally in the Middle East, Israel, and like advance interests that are generally against what the U.S. wants uh, around the region. And so um, I'm not sure exactly what China is looking for in Middle Eastern politics. Um, oil would be an easy thing to get. Um, other goals might be more difficult, but those both seem like natural allies politically. Mm. So does, does Russia... Does Russia think of NATO as like a direct threat, as like a, a team trying to take it down? Yes. Yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, they see it as a direct threat. The more countries that join NATO, I guess the less options they have, the more isolated they become from... Their, I mean, now Russia is, is really isolated from Europe, uh, given like how many NATO countries there are, given how many countries have... like. You know, defense of the United States military and, and you know the rest of the NATO countries militaries. Um, good. Putin calls the the fall the, the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest tragedy of the 20th, 20th century. Um, they want to be a global power. They want to control Eastern Europe. They want to have influence over the whole world. And instead, over the last couple of decades, they have collapsed, lost most of their territorial power. Um, they, you know, their economy fell off for a while. It's recovered a bit. Um, but NATO is just like, here are the lines that you will never cross. You will have to go to the war, go to war with the mm. United States if you want to mm. cross this line. And to say that Ukraine would be part of that or to, that, that Finland, uh, somebody who's on your border would be part of that, um, that just is never going to sit well with them. U Ukraine was not a part of NATO. Is that right? No, no. If they were, we would have to, we would have to defend them. So it's an interesting two th uh, it's an interesting thing too, because the more allies you add, right, the more people you bring into NATO, now the more people you're responsible for protecting. So you get so, a lot of free riders. All these yeah. European countries, we've been trying to get them to spend two percent of GDP on their military, whereas the US spends I, I think it's maybe more like five. Um, and yet all these countries just have very low defense budgets, even though they're the ones with the most to lose if is Russia there, were to come. Is there not some kind of like NATO like tax like where you're that that money that every participating country is? It, it's minimal. It, it's like oh, there's there? probably some kind of fees or something. But there's it's a huge problem of European countries not spending enough on their military and then the U.S. having to shoulder. What do you guys think about about really upping that, you know, that? Mm. um that membership fee. The U.S. has been lobbying for it for years, but how do you make it happen? I mean, oh, they, they are lobbying for it in NATO. We are going to defend these countries, and they know that, and they know they can just like play helpless because what else are we going to do? Just let Russia attack Ukraine? No. So, yeah, uh, I think it's interesting too how, you know, the past five ten years everyone's been really critical of the u.s military budget like uh, 650 billion dollars and all of a sudden now we live in a time where it's like thank god you know like uh should we even up the budget in nato right so 
I don't know. I think I think it's a pretty ominous time, guys. What do you guys think of? We have Finland joining NATO, like you said. China is allying with Iran. It, it's a what very interesting question domestically, politically. So Trump was super isolationist. He was like, "We should withdraw from all these stupid conflicts abroad." Yeah. Um, you know, Biden finally got us out of Afghanistan, and then that totally collapsed, and everyone was very upset about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron DeSantis is known to be against Ukraine, uh, like the war and just spending too much money. And like we have budget cuts coming in our own country and we need to really think about what we're doing here. Um, personally, I think we should defend free countries. I think Afghanistan, if we had stayed there, would not be ruled by the Taliban right now. I think Ukraine uh, would be in a much worse position if they weren't receiving U.S. aid and U.S. military equipment. Um but that's going to be a big political question. I don't know. Do you think people have the appetite to continue these foreign wars or will people want to pull back? There's a question. It seems to me like it's one of those situations where um, if you're – have you guys seen this kind of quote? It's like threat to – a threat to freedom anywhere is a threat to freedom everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? So – it seems to me like if you're not protecting you know, a sovereign country, a democratic institution, that is a serious threat, not only to that institution, but to the United States. And so I personally think, yeah, like you said, we should be protecting these sovereign nations. Uh, and people kind of say like, oh, is it the United States' responsibility to be the world policeman and, and watch everyone's back? Uh, but I don't really see it as our responsibility. I see it as it's in our best interest uh, for our own protection. To, to take that kind of action. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on the uh, the domino theory then from uh, post-World War II? With, right. Uh, For example, do you have to defend Taiwan with all of your might? Because if Taiwan falls, then everything falls. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is the modern version of the Cold War theory that if one country goes communist, you know, you have to send everyone to Vietnam. You have to have a draft to protect southern Vietnam because if southern Vietnam falls, yeah. then the whole world falls to communism. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's a dumb theory. I mean, I, I think when Russia invades, invades Ukraine, and for the most, I don't want to say they got away with it, but for the most part, they didn't get brutally punished. They got some, they got some heavy economic sanctions on them, but uh, we didn't send any. Yeah, and back in troops. 2014, they took Crimea, and there was no real response. There was no credible attempt sure, to Crimea prevent them to doing that. And then a couple of years later. They decided that they'd like to take all of Ukraine. So they'd like Ukraine. to take Kiev. And now you have China looking at Taiwan. Uh, I, I think it, it definitely exists. Maybe the whole world is not going to fall to authoritarianism or, or communism. But I think it is a, it is a, it is an issue. And so that's that's also what scares me is that we're kind of one by one as these countries fall. We're I feel like we're gearing up for this one event where it becomes, okay, we have to send everybody here or else... There'll be a crisis. I mean, what do you guys think of that? Do you guys think we're approaching World War Three? Is the question. I think the way I don't know about that, but I think the way the way you just framed it of like, um, you know, Russia, China, both looking to, you know, expand their territory and not respect other nations' sovereignty mm. uh, at the same time, and also being in talks with each other. Sure. Raises a, a situation. Yeah, it does raise a situation because as these boundaries are drawn with like Finland joining us and then Saudi Arabia, Iran, China. Like it seems like people are sort of like getting ready to team up into like, uh, yeah. Exactly. Which is, 
you know what what okay go ahead Aiden. I, I do like drawing the lines more clearly yeah for example uh one proposed settlement of the war in ukraine is to allow russia to have the territory that they have taken and keep that and that can be part of russia maybe you know the people there will have to vote it's hard to imagine doing a free and fair election in, uh, you know russian controlled parts of ukraine um, but this was proposed by henry kissinger uh richard nixon's secretary of state you know famous foreign policy thinker and he says that you give Russia the parts of Ukraine that they already control, and then you take the rest of Ukraine and you put it in NATO. And you make it very clear that, look, functionally we have been defending Ukraine throughout this war. We have not sent U.S. troops, but we have sent tens of billions of dollars, tanks, missiles, whatever you want. And so to draw the battle lines more clearly and say, look, Russia, you are now fully in control of this territory. We're not going to have contested territory where random you know, fighting is going to break out. But you are fully not allowed to cross this line, and we really will respond brutally if you do. That would have to be acceptable to Russia. If Russia were going to treat that as an existential threat and like continue the war, like, you, you would need to know that that like, ceasefire can hold, at least for a little while. Um, but I think drawing the world up into these camps is mostly productive it certainly increases the stakes if anything is to break. Sure. Um, but the better effect is to reduce the probability of conflict. Yeah. Okay, so to respond to that, I don't think Russia will, will ever accept that. Um, Fair enough. It, it, yeah, it, it, it seems to me that, you know, they have the upper hand in this war just in terms of military strength, if you're talking about Russia versus Ukraine. I don't know. I think they can play the waiting game, too. We're seeing that domestically, the United States has different opinions on how much money and, and equipment we should be sending there. Um, do you not think so? Do you not think that they can play the waiting game? I think that they're not the better military power. They have like totally failed really? in their military objectives. They did not make it to Kiev. They yeah. control like a maybe 10, 15 percent of the landmass in like the part that's closest to Russia, and a part where like many people are even sympathetic to uh, the being Russian. Um, they have more political staying power because Putin has staked potentially his entire power on this war, um, mm -hmm. has announced a draft. Uh, that was that was maybe six months ago now, um, but those people are flooding into the front lines. Like, if, if they are significantly defeated, if they don't have political face to save coming out of this war, then it's easier to imagine scenarios where he falls out of power and he's just not going to let that happen. Um, and so they will continue fighting this. They would have no motivation to accept right. Ukraine going into NATO, sure. which does make sense. Sure. And it's, it's kind of a worrying thought, too. What, what do you guys think happens if, if Russia is not able to take Ukraine? It, does, it starts looking bad for Putin. It's a threat to his power. Do you think that would make him think more ira like irrationally? And isn't, that like a, isn't that a scary thought in itself? I mean, that's pretty terrifying Very. to me. That's pretty terrifying. Sounds like uh, Putin needs a 10-day Vipassana course, 10-day silent meditation. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I wonder what would happen, actually, if that happened. You'd take Putin, just, like, have him meditate for 100 hours and see, like, like where, like where is his mind so at after that? Does he want to control Ukraine does, after that? Does he want to control Ukraine? Does he join NATO? Does he, like, take a vacation and just, like, sip on a... You never, you never know. I mean, it's so ingrained. It's you know his vision of, of you know bringing back the Soviet Union is so ingrained. He could do, do a, a Vipassana. Vipassana. He could do a Vipassana and come back with even more ambition. You know, there's a reason that he hasn't 
carpet bombed Ukraine and just taken it because he believes that it's truly part of of Russia and Soviet Union it needs to be taken delicately because it's it's their land, mm. right? So yeah, yeah. It's always it's always interesting to think about how like uh, how sort of not um how 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 much these sort of like leaders dictators if you will mm-hmm. like really buy in to their own sort of um what would you say oh they do their own like mantra to yeah it, like so some political leaders are cynical and just want to do what people think what they think people are going to like i think we got some pretty good quotes of from trump out of this over the years mm-hmm. saying that, like oh my supporters they're all idiots like they'll eat this up um <laughs> Fox News certainly has had a lot of news come out recently where they're like, God, this Trump guy, I can't believe him. How do our viewers enjoy this? And then they go on and like repeat all the lines. Um, but, you know, something like Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or even Joe Biden's vision of what each of their those leaders, what they believe their country should be in the world, which is one of the great powers and a country that spreads their ideology abroad. That is just pure they they all believe that True. down to the very core yeah yeah it's it's not too much of a stretch to, to do believe you, that that like your that that you your people are great your country is great that it'd be better it'd be better if everyone else kind of bought into your ideology too whether that's um you know democracy or whatever else we maybe. what do you think you would believe if you were brought up there if you were born in Russia right. in 1898, would you be a socialist? Would you be overthrowing the, the monarchy and you know, fighting for Lenin? Good question. It's hard to say. It's impossible to there say. Are, it's impossible, I think. Could you possibly? I think, I think the answer is yes. I, I think that there were many educated socialists in America, um, let alone in the Soviet Union. I think time and place determines so much of what people believe. Um, and it's not just social pressure. It's just like y- you can be an intelligent person and you say, oh, well, these are the arguments I have heard. And like I have not heard good counter arguments. And like all the smart people around me think this is correct and this is intelligent. And I'm going to join this movement because this they have the best ideas. Mm. That's a really good point, actually. The the like looking to people around you mm-hmm. and, and even those who aren't around you, but maybe who you look up to on like the radio at that time or nowadays on like TikTok or youtube and being like this person's super smart like for example i look up to someone like andrew yang i look up to Yuval Noah harari mm-hmm. so not that i like not that i offload my thinking onto the off to onto them entirely but if they do sort of give out an idea like andrew yang's ubi i haven't like thought incredibly critically about that but i'm like i respect this guy this guy's thought it through he's he knows more than i do i place my my my, my trust in you Speaking of influencers, there's now a push and a bill on the floor of the U.S. Congress to ban TikTok. Oh, sure. Let's talk about uh, this. TikTok has been accused of spying on U.S. users, tracking their location, mm-hmm. uh, reading things from like their clipboard, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's also potentially a propaganda tool. Um, you know, It's not obvious that this is happening already. There's no good evidence, but certainly the algorithm could be twisted in ways um, that benefit the Chinese political regime. Um, and China asserts like very strong control over all of their technology companies, 
Um, you know, they've had CEOs jailed. They've threatened to break up companies. Uh, Xi Jinping announced that video games were getting too powerful in China and that all children were to be limited to three hours a week. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think it's worth banning TikTok in the United States? I think, I think that banning TikTok is like the wrong, like, a, like initial approach. I mm -hmm. feel like it might not be, a, it wouldn't be a terrible um, outcome. Yeah. Terrible like solution, but I think what we really need is a better sort of like American like privacy act, which applies to all like, social media, not just TikTok. And I and this is sort of what the I forget his name, the, the spokesperson, the CEO for for TikTok was was saying at the hearing was was a lot of the way he responded to tough tougher questions mm -hmm. about data privacy. He, he would say sir we we follow industry standards right we don't do much any of anything differently than our the competitors like those like facebook snapchat the rest mm -hmm. and so i think that there's also issues there there's very clearly issues there with how with how facebook uses our data um, on a lot of levels and so i think that if i think that uh, the right kind of like privacy act and i think that there was one pr proposed it's called the um restrict act mm -hmm. i think or um, what is the, the full name? These like bills, Senate bill 686. And there, that's, that was sort of the approach of like, it's not just at TikTok, it's also at other social medias, but actually I've, I've heard that Senate bill 686 is, this restrict act is super invasive in, in how much control it gives the government to sort of like, like one-off control, like what social media is okay, what's not okay and how far the line should go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, okay, so I think in terms of like social media companies using our data, I think the primary concern with TikTok though is that it's a Chinese company, right? ByteDance is, is the mm -hmm. uh, parent company of TikTok, right? So the CCP has been known to be able to just look into data that quote unquote private companies there uh, to have. And I think that's a security threat that is the security threat to the United States that people are worried about, right? Because there are American companies, YouTube Shorts and Instagram Reels that offer like the same, similar, you know, similar to the same product as TikTok. But no one's, people are concerned with the data, but I think for other reasons. TikTok, I believe, is a national security threat to the United States. I was listening to a podcast. It said TikTok in the United States, I think, has a little over 100 million users. And a significant number of those users say TikTok is their primary source of news. Which is which is pretty crazy, right? There's it's a social media platform. Okay, a that's problematic, but b that uh, proposes a you know great opportunity for China to 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 feed any sort of propaganda if they wanted to. Um, it's we you know we live in a day to day of of an information of information war, right? And so if you have the minds of a hundred million Americans, I think it's a concerning thought. But I agree with you, Adam. I don't think banning TikTok, having the government ban TikTok is is the best possible outcome in this scenario. Yeah, like there's like the way you just described the problem of, of um, TikTok and the information war is like really accurate. But it's like could like there's there's no stopping another country from building another viral social media right. down the road that could be just like TikTok. And so there needs to be a more um, structured approach to like sort of like foreign you know, 
social medias or maybe there's a better terminology for it right um and how and how we how we regulate that as opposed to just like tiktok bad i think we ban it it's the most viral app there's been in the last five years um there's no more popular social media app among the youngest americans uh the odds that there's going to be another success like that are pretty low and you could just ban that one again um it does raise the question Mm -hmm. of whether all this surveillance by tech companies that we've totally accepted for many many years Mm -hmm is actually dangerous. There's the combination of two things. So Adam, you said that the CEO's defense was that we do the same thing that everybody does. Everybody has your location. Everybody has your personal information. Um, We try to store it in secure ways, but uh, this is really just industry standard. Um, But the real difference with TikTok is that there's a motive. So that means to surveil people has always been available, but the motive of the Chinese government to have some foreign policy interest in the United States is new. That's something that Mark Zuckerberg, that Google doesn't have. And so we've just been allowing these country, these companies like Google and Facebook to accumulate all this information about users and just kind of assuming they're not going to do anything bad with it. Um, if you go back to like libertarian thinking or you know the, the founding fathers, they would have said that concentrated power is bad always and everywhere. You just don't let the government do certain things. Um, because even if they claim to have a reasonable basis, even if they say we're not going to abuse this power, any power will always corrupt. And you're just not going to allow these massive concentrations of power. But in the tech era, in the post 9-11 surveillance era, when the NSA and the CIA were working with these big tech companies to monitor Americans' phone calls, um, this was totally accepted. Um, Do you think that all the benefits we get of personalized advertising that allows you to pay for Google Maps and Google Search and all these different free services, Facebook, we get on the internet. Do you think that's worth it? Or do we need to like totally change how the internet works and make people anonymous online, even if that makes services less useful and more expensive? Why, where, where is this assumption coming from that like it makes them like more expensive? So tracking all your personal information. Oh, isn't like you'd have to like pay Google money to start to like to use Google services because they aren't right. making money off selling exactly. personalized ads now. Mm-hmm. I, for one, am not really concerned with tech companies having my data, and and uh, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of unsettling in some ways, but it's like okay, you have my data. What are they I'm gonna like, do? Yeah, keeping targeted ads. Okay, like. They've sure, they've yeah. never done anything bad with it before. Right now, they right. don't really have a motive to do anything bad with it. Right. But then it comes along, you know, the CCP and it's like, oh, well, they might want to do something bad with it. So we're not going to let them have it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the question is whether you'd be concerned down the road that the fact that Mark Zuckerberg has all this data and we just assume he's probably like a nice guy or at least relatively neutral. Yeah. Is that a, is that a safe assumption? True. Good point. Um. Yeah, you're right. Concentrated power, it, it can be it can be dangerous thing. They haven't done anything bad with it they yet. They haven't done anything bad with it It's yeah. It's hard to imagine what bad things they would do with it. But right. Right. I feel like it's a bad way of thinking, though. Like, they haven't done anything bad with it right. yet. So we're no, chilling. no, exactly. Like, right. Like, there's any, any like, example in history you could find where, like, nothing bad happened until something bad happened. And then <laughs> right. we're like, bro, how did you not see that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, providing all this information to the NSA and the FBI and you know, letting them create watch lists of Americans that couldn't get on planes without extra screening using this information. Like, maybe those are the harms. Yeah. yeah I'm so. To bring it back, I'm with you on that, like, 
I'm with you on banning TikTok. I'm just, my approach would be like, it shouldn't be like a, if you're going to ban TikTok, you could do it in a way where you also add better privacy protections for Americans. Hmm. For like other One of the controversies over this new bill is that it's supposed to be a broader solution. And it basically it empowers the government to take a lot of action against a lot of social media companies. And a lot of people are like, whoa, whoa, what, what happened to the idea? The word TikTok, the word ByteDance does not appear in the bill. It's just giving the government a lot of like discretionary power to regulate social media. I think, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think that, I think it's a good thing that the word TikTok doesn't appear in the bill, but I think the bill also goes too far and it, their power should not be like as much as this bill gives them. Yeah, my concern with banning TikTok is is exactly what you said, Aiden, discretionary power to, to do what they want with, with social media companies. Once we give the, the United States government the power to decide for us, oh, this social media company is bad for you, this one is good for you, this one will stay in some old. I mean, well, that's that's the thing. We should we shouldn't give them the power to say like, right, this right. is good, this is bad. So right. if it shouldn't be discretionary power, then I would say that it should be a specific one-off case of like, look, this is an unprecedented mm -hmm. company. This yeah. is well, probably not going to happen. I think there's again. there's a there's a there's a way to we're just going to there's a way to like split the difference. Like it's there's what if you made a, a what's what the if, principal basis like on which you would say a non-U.S. tech company, a non-U.S. so company. all foreign companies are not allowed to run social media in the United States? Well, not that they're not allowed to, but that they're held to different standards. Like so what are the standards? Like, they are no longer, like, trusted, like, de facto. But what does that mean? So would they be, like, open to... Well, in terms of, like, what you were saying, like, shouldn't U.S. government determine if social media is good or bad? Mm -hmm. If it's U.S.-based, it's good. Oh. If it's not U.S.-based, then it's, like, maybe not good. And then you can create maybe, like, I don't know, like a three-pronged test to... to or, or yeah. you just create I, I think these, restrictions. I think, unfortunately, it's a lot more binary than that because either you let TikTok operate in the United States or you don't. But I don't think there's like a safe way to have TikTok operating in the United States. Um, if Americans' data is on servers that are in China and the Chinese government is able to access those, then what kind of workaround could there be that would make that okay to you for U.S. foreign policy interests, I, I just don't think there is one. And maybe we could apply that standard to other countries. Like we can say that like all foreign companies must keep data on users in the United States uh, going forward. But this seems like a unique threat. Interesting. Well, gentlemen, very good conversation today. Awesome. Woo it was good. Well done, guys. We'll be back. Uh, Shortly, another episode, right? Yes, yes. One just around the corner. Cool. Have a great day. Awesome. Thanks for listening. And we'll guys. pick this up later. Thank you very much. Yep.